Welcome to the second episode about Sam, or Yanni, this Yanni. Country music for me is that touching my feelings. I love it. I listen to metal at the same time. I love metal because it's crazy music. You know, one of the really difficult things about the way the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq were executed is how military units rotated in and out every nine months to a year, or 15 months in the case of my Iraq deployment. This presents a lot of issues. The most obvious is probably the logistical demand of all that movement. But there's something more important, and absolutely more impactful. You see, the mission of the military at the time was to provide enough stability that the new Iraqi government could actually start governing. You have to have public support for stability. Public support requires trust. And, well, the way trust is established depends on the culture. It just so happens that, in this culture, Trust is only built through established relationships. I think you can do the math, but it is extremely hard to build established relationships in enough time to make any sort of impact in nine months to a year. It turns out that talking to old Iraqi men is tedious work. Strangely enough, in all of this, there were people there to carry the torch from unit to unit that offered some stability where little was given. It's the interpreters that stayed when deployed military came and went keeping vigil over critical relationships until new leaders learned enough humility to communicate effectively. They invested their lives in this work, watching, living, and learning their units. This time, you get to learn about Sam's time as an interpreter for U.S. forces, another perspective that most people will never hear. His is a very unique perspective, a first-row seat in the highs and lows of the U.S. experience in Iraq. I'm very excited for you to hear it. Welcome to No Shit, There I Was, a podcast committed to telling the stories you may never otherwise hear. So settle in, kick back, and take it all in. This week's episode is brought to you by Emblem Athletic. Do you have a team that operates like the Dirty Dozen, but looks more like Major Payne's JROTC squad? Look the way you perform with custom design and built athletic gear you create with a team from Emblem Athletic. Alright, so this is the second of a two-episode stretch, so I highly recommend you listen to the previous episode before this one, but if you want to be stubborn and don't, here's a note. It'll take a few minutes to get used to Sam's accent. Once you do, it's really easy listening. There's some cursing in this, so just be warned if you're listening with family. If you'll remember, we're picking up where Sam was talking about revenge from the Bathist. So here we go. So, by the way, we talk about revenge. The Arabs which is me, I'm part of them. The Arabs culture, since they being created somewhere, their culture is built on revenge, hate, fighting. They are desert people, they are Bedouin. And the history of the Arabs, they were fighting always, for reason or no reason. And sometimes for very stupid reason, they were fight forever. So bad party will never ever give up. Why? Because they ruled the country for about more than 40 years. They will not accept somebody to take their powers away from them. Americans, not Americans, they will not accept. They will stay aside, but they will not be quiet. That's because they cooperated with Qaeda. They cooperated with the bad people just to revenge. Or to get their power back, as they think. 
Yeah. And they got nothing. They just destroyed their country. And anyway, when somebody better than me coming to take care for my business or my work, which is not mine, it's like for everybody, what I will do if I will not be able to compete with him, I will try to make problems for them. I will cut the power lines, for example. I will say, see, when I was there, everything was perfect. Now you don't have power because of the new people. And actually, it's not because of the new people. It's because you are very evil and you try to uh, just prove yourself that you were something. You weren't. Some people say when Saddam was in the power, no, any problem. Yes, I agree. There is no like big problem like Qaeda and ISIS and this shit. It's because Saddam, he was the, the main evil. How he allowed for small evils to be around him. That's impossible. It's very right. common sense. So who starts killing people? When Bafari was there, Saddam Hussein was there. He has two sons, Oday and Kusay. So Oday was in charge of uh, what's called Fida'i Saddam groups. And these people, they were fighting everyone. And these groups, they were trained to kill people by knives, cut hands, cut necks, which is mean they were ready. So these people, after the war, disappeared? Of course not. They were there. And they've been trained to kill people. Like, it's for them, it's just like, when you are thirsty, you will drink water very easy, correct? For them, they will kill people like very easy way. So, of course, these people joined to where? Are they going to join to, to work with Americans? No, they can't join to work with Americans because their job is to kill people. So, who's going to welcome with them? The sad truth is there is plenty of work for him. Both Sunni and Shia militias are well documented for having used death squads throughout the period of sectarian violence in the four years after invasion, inciting violence which led to the U.S. troop surge of 2007. It ended up being a successful attempt to give the new Iraqi government some stable runway to get established, though the consequences of an indoctrinated insurgency would be felt in the region for many more years. But let's get back to Sam. So when you were asked the first time to come work with the American forces, you, you know, told them, hey, no, I have to stay with my family. Yeah, how did you get into it? Like how, you know, oh, what? In 2004, I was working between Baghdad and Kerbala like a taxi driver, and it was not safe. And it's actually in 2003, my car got stolen and by three gunmen. I fought with them, but I lost. Like, they were three, I was just for myself. They were going with pistols, I have nothing on me. And they hit me a lot with their guns without shooting me. They just used their guns, like, on my head, on my face. And I gave up. So that's made some bad influence with me. Then my uncles, my aunts came to visit from Europe, from somewhere, to visit us. It's the first time for them after 30 years or maybe 35 years. And we gather all of us. It was so amazing and not amazing because my grandmother, Verma, she was wished to see them before she died. But she died before they were coming within two or three days. So they missed her, they, she missed them. So they came and the funeral was there. So anyway, they supported us and they supported me and uh, they bought me a new car. I started working again and I was asking myself, what are these people doing in green zone? And mm. uh, why these people? Then I heard like interpreters and these things. Ah, the green zone. For me, this was a place of myth and legend. 
In my short trips to larger bases, friends would tell me about going to this deployment Shangri-La, sitting next to a pool, not having the rifle next to them for a while. In reality, the Green Zone was a four-square-mile section of Baghdad that used to be Saddam's palaces, but it was made into a safe zone in 2003 to prevent attacks on what would become the seat of the new Iraqi government, as well as the coalition diplomatic and military headquarters. It was finally reopened to the Iraqi public in 2018, seven years after the U.S. ended their mission and after years of concerns of government isolation from the Iraqi population. Then my car got broken on the highway. And uh, the Americans, they were making patrolling around with their interpreter. It was so bad. So I was talking to them, translating for them, and they tried to help me. They tried to convince the car. One of the guys, he said, I was a mechanic there. Let me try to see. He was checking. He said, oh, the best in fuel pump. I thought, oh, no, I don't think the fuel pump. Something is wrong. Something else. He said, no, that's fuel pump. And open the hood. Do, do, do. He was working like a mechanic for me. And they were waiting. Plus, it's open area, very open. So small RPG will kill all of us. So I want them to go. I want me and my brother to be more safe. So I told my brother with his kids, two kids, go take your kids away. The bad people they are going to shoot us and kill all of us. And then I took the, I told the soldier, hey, listen, it's very open area. They sh- can't shoot us. They can't kill us. He said, we need to help. I want to help. Like he wants just to help. And he stopped the other side, going to Baghdad, and he stopped the cars. Hey, do you have a rob? You need to take this guy to his house. I thought, oh, no, this guy, he's going to be the best reason to be killed. He was going to kill us somehow. <laughs> because Americans to help local people like this bad way, like, like yeah. amazing way. Like, it's impossible he doesn't know us. Uh, then somebody said, yes, I told dude, I will pay you. This guy, they tried to help. He said, yeah, yeah, no problem. So he asked for maybe five, ten, twenty dollars, I don't know. And then one of the sergeants said, hey, your English language is so good, better than my interpreter. We are locating this place, blah, blah, blah. I, told, I think what is your, I, I think I know what is your base. He said, please come and uh, apply there. So after a week, I went there with no car, just by myself. Like, I have some transportation from place to other place. Then I reached this place. It was dangerous, of course, to go there. And I met some somebody by the gate. He said, oh, if you want to apply, you need to go to the green zone. You apply there, and from there, they will send you to us, send you somewhere else. I said, fuck, I came here for nothing. And I looks like I'm from, not from this area. And from Baghdad, yeah, and from how I dress all these things. The huge problem now: how I should go out of the base, American base, to the main street, take a taxi or something. So that's a big challenge. So I say, oh, let me prepare some good lights. And I stay over the main street. There's a taxi stop by. I ride with them because not only one person, two or three people, they were there. And I told them, oh, see, these motherfuckers, Americans, fuck them. I do have my car and my taxi car. And the driver was driving on the highway. And his car got broke. And they detained him with the car. And the car is in there. Because I saw some civilian cars in there. It was for people they were working or they were broken on the highway or something. I don't know. So I created a good story. They said, yeah, this happened. I thought, yeah. God damn, like, what I should do now? Like, the car there. 
and my driver is inside. Like, and they told me, no, we arrested him and uh, get away before we arrest you too. I said, oh, dude, don't go back again there. They were arrested. Yeah, I will not go back, but I feel sorry for my driver. He has a family and this and this. And oof, I get out from this area. And then I had to take another car, going to another place, and then another one to go to Baghdad. When I've been in Baghdad, I say, fuck, I will not do this again. Then I start working for ice cream company. It was run by uh, one of the family friends. And I was staying there. And the Americans, they were come to this factory and not visit us 100%, but they were chill a little bit in the factory. It was big, huge. And they were, uh, they were asking sometimes questions, this, this, and we're talking about things. So I asked their translator, hey, how can I apply? He said, oh, they are closed now. They are not open. They did that. Oh, okay. Then a friend to me, he's working for the army. Uh, we're talking, say, hey, listen, Sam, you need to go to the gate of the green zone, this number of the gate, and then you will do this and this, and somebody will come and you will tell him, yes, I want to go to this company. So that's what's happened. That's 2005, and uh, somebody took us to inside, and it was like, oh, shoot, I'm inside Saddam Hussein Palace now. That's <laughs> kind of scary, even it's 2005. Yeah. And, he, and I know he's been captured already. And I know Odell Kusei been killed already. Still, like, like years and years, tens of years, we were living with us scary feelings. So it's not easy to take this away from us within a second. No, that's absolutely understandable. Yes. So applied and passed. And they asked us, where are you going? want to go we do have this option dub 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 buy up i thought oh yeah buy up because one of the guys told us go say buy up i thought well, what's buy up the baghdad international airport I thought, oh okay to hit on sam's point a little bit more the baghdad airport was a major operational objective in the initial evasion and coalition forces ended up building four major bases around it to conduct operations fob or forward operating base liberty which you'll hear about later is located there tell me about how you pick the name yanni for your interpreter name i used to love this musician yanni yep now that's the yanni very famous yeah, yeah very and, famous and uh some people they said he's gay he's i don't care he's gay or not he's his music makes me feel like i'm in a different world so when i joined to there and uh, they asked me uh what's your nickname uh what's your nickname you have to pick up American name for you. American. Can I pick up Indian name for myself? <laughs> so the guy was. Uh, he loved. Ah, thought, okay. <laughs> oh my god. Then I told him. Uh, he said any name. I thought. Oh, Yanni. He said how you spell this? It's Y A N N I. I said okay. That's your name now. Okay. And I, many of even my friends, the Iraqi friends, who they are here now, when they call me, they call me Yanni. They, that's funny yes i mean for the almost the entire time we've known each other you've been yanni to me so yes (laughs) yes that's the the name and yeah from there started and uh the first unit i started with was triple dues cap mountain and yeah i learned a lot from them a lot and they were nice and tough and very assholes at the same time and super good at the same time they were everything in one thing (laughs) wait wait 
What do you yeah, mean every, by assholes? Hold on. We you got to like, explain as, that. Oh, I do have a South Sergeant. He was super asshole. Super tough with everyone. And yeah. no one can work with him from the interpreter except me and another guy. Yeah. We were the only two guys able to go with him his missions and to stop him sometimes to do crazy things. Like he, he was, we were going to Abu Ghraib uh, market. It was bad. And he was detained tense, not ten, tense sometimes. Like, calm down. What's fucking wrong with that? This is my job. This is not fucking job. You arrested people for nothing. And sometimes he got angry with things and with people sometimes. And he got the stick. He tried to hit one of the people. And he was just 17 years old. And then I stopped him. He was strong. So strong, Sergeant, this one. I said, no, no, you can't do this. He said, no, I can't. I said, no, you can't. People seeing that's not correct. You represent it not for yourself. If you talk about yourself, fuck yourself. You represent it for the fucking uniform you are wearing. So stop. His lieutenant, he wasn't saying anything to him. He was control his team 100%. He's super protected. Like, we've been attacked, and I've been stuck in the house with my medic. I have no gun. My medic has just a shotgun. We tried to help the family. And the shooting fire started against them, and they were in the street. And he came running into the, inside the house. He said, it's time to go. Now, you have a weapon? I thought, no. I said, that's correct. You don't have a weapon. Sit in the fucking car. Never open the door. Ever. Your life is very important. And he pushed me inside the Humvee, and he said, lock it. Don't get out. It's okay, okay. I'm done. So next day we were talking. Me and him. He said, "Hey, this is a motherfucker." I thought, okay. You talk about bad things about me, but it's okay. He said, "No, the good way." So right, okay. Or the good way, I will accept it. He said, "I do like your life, and your life is very important for me. Everybody' life is very important for me. That's my responsibility here. I want to get out from Iraq, go back to my house, and I want to feel like everybody's safe." Whatever has happened, I want everybody safe, including you. So I want you always to be clearly listen to me when I talk about anything. Because by the point, if something happened, the only one person I will blame it will be myself. So he was very good human inside his heart. But he was just a tough guy and very asshole sometimes. With his soldiers, he was super bad. But they were love him. They were love him and respect him. We were doing good, and by the end, we been sent to work in Firebase. Firebase just being built or being occupied, something. It was belonged to some another unit, and they gave it to us, and we went there. It's different life, like a different story, and uh, we hate it. Like I actually like, we hate Firebase. I don't know. We changed the name, correct? The Firebase is. What we call it, our base, the small base. Okay. For anybody who's listening, that's Combat Outpost. Yeah. It's called Courage. Mm-hmm. It's, it's where yes. it was this wonderful destination we got to live for. Uh, I got to live there for 13 months. Sam got to live there for longer. Yes. It's a long time for me in that place. Oh. We were just like this place. It was like in the middle of nowhere. It was hard for us to go home, to come back. And uh, it was so headache. But later on, we lost first lieutenant and staff sergeant. I remember the lieutenant, his name's Sidel, but his last name. And 
the driver staff sergeant, I don't remember his name, I don't remember his face, and the general, and Lieutenant Colonel from the Civil Affairs and his Iraqi interpreter. And they were going, I think, maybe west uh, of Firebase, maybe northwest, uh, that village to check a uh, war plane for them, for the village area. And they blew up them in there. It was a big mass, actually. They were good people, very good people. I I met Van Chapter only once. He's not from our was working for civil affairs. And yeah. But the three guys, they were with us every single day. They were amazing. Like uh, they know how they do their job. But as we say, it is what it is. And uh, when you think I was, I remember this guy always. I said like because he has very nice voice, like country voice. And I was always asking, hey, come on, sing for us what we are doing in here. And I'm great. <laughs> we're just watching. He said, oh, after I thought, time for what? We are have like six hours, another six hours. Go. So come on. And just quiet. Like we were like set up in the street and singing. He was singing nice voice. Yeah, I was enjoyed with his missions actually. It was like very nice, very safe, very quiet missions. No problems. Yeah. And Funny thing, we were in the heart of Abu Ghraib, the town itself, and we pulled over by one of the streets. It was 3 a.m. maybe, and we should go back to our base at 6, so three hours. So the LT told the driver, hey, I will take a nap for 10, 15 minutes, just wake me up. Like, so the driver told, oh, yes, sir, of course. So the LT falls asleep. The whole 20 guys, including me, of course, boom, four trucks, okay? All of us fall asleep. I opened my eyes. It was around 7.10. I heard people walking around us. Yikes. Going to the market, coming back, and beginners, they are sleeping, all of them. All of us, we were sleeping. And you can tell because they put, like, their sunglasses on, and it looks like waking, but actually all of us were sleeping. That's, that's still pretty dangerous. Super excellent dangerous. Just imagine if they could to know, and it's a program, it's not a game. If they could to know we were sleeping, super easy. Just four guys with four grenades, finish us. Boom, all done. So I wake up, open my eyes, and I pay attention. Everybody's sleeping in my truck, and no one moving. All the cars are paying attention. Fuck. And I just did, uh, 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 and Belty jumped from his seat. <gasps> what? What the? So, it's seven ten. I remember seven ten, and everybody wake up, and you can see running when I told him, God damn, just imagine that. He said you were sleeping too. Now, of course, I'm number one sleeping. So, <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. Of course, Yanni's gonna but sleep. I do. So it was like it was so dangerous where she would be, but. Yeah. yeah. Thank God. Like, I would say we were blessed. So, yeah, that's the story for Death Mountain. Then from Trouble Tools to 121, 121, yes, Pop ID. Uh, they were like, eh, not that much. Then they moved me from my platoon to another platoon. I love that platoon a lot. We've been hit a lot with IDs. It's almost every day. My vehicle was the first one. And the guy who I was riding with him, he was a uh, captain. And uh, once he turned his face to me, he said, Yanni, listen, we are going to die. I want you to die. 
you are not like a part of this. You're still civilian. Let me know which unit you want to go, and I will do my best to move you to there. Because there is no point for you to die. I tell him, hey, Captain, listen, your family. He said, yes, I do have two kids. I'm single. I do have no kids, no wife, nothing. And we are the same vehicle. If you will die, I will die. If I will die, you will die. So it will be equal. It will be easy. Don't be worried. And I stayed with him. No one from my team had anything happened to them. No one. I was right with them every single day. Trust me, I was going scared. It was 2006 and uh, Ramadan month. You know, Ramadan is holy month for Muslims. Yeah, of course. 30 days. We've been hit 30 IEDs. 30 days. Every single day, we were hit by ID. And once we've been hit in the market, our Kandari market. So we tried to go inside the market. It's the main street. And we stopped. So it was about noontime. So he asked me, hey, Yanni, is there any religion things today? I told him, oh, you asked me, do I know about religion things? He said, oh, for real, I thought, for real, I don't know. I, I'm not connected to these things. But why? He said, look. So I look at what? He said, the market is empty. I thought, oh, yes, that's correct. No one in the market. No people, no cars. The goods, they were there, outside. Vegetables, whatever things, they were outside. But no people, no one. He said, that's weird or not? It's very weird, which is me very something is waiting on us. He said, okay. So he called the other guys. He told them, hey, you stay there on the main, main street, because there's main street and this the other street of the market. We are going in. I told him, oh, we are going in for what? <laughs> for what? He said, to check. Check what? He said, there's something. Said, we can't see. Are we blind? We can see something. Hopefully, we are going to see something. So we don't have to sacrifice ourselves to find out what's going on. And he said, drive to the driver. The driver was a good driver, but you can't tell. We, like, something will happen. And he was checking around very slow. It was just handy, by the way. And yeah. the driver, his hand on the gear. So just in case he's going to pull back, the gunner low himself a little bit down. And me and the RT, correct, it's called RT, the radio guy. Uh, RTO. Yeah, RTO. We were in the back seat, and I just heard him, shit, back! And the driver tried to push the Humvee back, and they blow up it. <laughs> they blow up the ID. And the Humvee just moved up, down, the paved street stuff, like, like rockets and these things. He's talking about asphalt here. Start coming on us like rain. Bum, 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 bum. And the driver pulled back to check. Humvee was okay. Small damage. We get out from the Humvee. The medic came to us, checked us, and we were good. Nobody hurts. And I start laughing. Then the staff sergeant said, Yanni, are you okay? Said, yeah, I'm okay. He said, you are laughing for, on what? Said, oh, we are okay. So I will not laugh. I laugh on them. Fuck them. Nobody could hurt us. We are so lost. Then a crazy guy came. Looks like homeless, okay? And they told him, stop, stop. And everybody understands stop, what does it mean? And he was just walking towards us. The staff sergeant, he gave him warning shot beside him. Then he stopped and he said, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> so what the fuck you are, where are you going? They searched him, the soldier, they searched him before I reached him. And 
we ask, what are you going to say? I'm going there, though. There's nothing is called there. Just go home. Say then I see some people in the mosque, in the main mosque of Kandari. And I call them, hey, come take this guy before the Americans, they're going to arrest him now. We want just to push him away. And actually, we were only three vehicles, by the way. Wow. We were go- yeah, only three vehicles. It's not four, it's only three. So it is not easy. The reason the number of vehicles is significant is because at some point, U.S. command in Iraq mandated that four vehicles were the minimum to be used while on patrol. I believe the logic was that even if the vehicles had to split over a short distance, they would still be able to pair and support each other with a machine gun on each. But anyway. So I walk him to the mosque. Okay, you good from here. Just go. It was very dangerous, like when we were going for opium or something in our vehicles at nighttime or daytime. I wasn't able to go outside the vehicle to pee or something. I have to pee in a bottle or something. Like, it was so hard. It's not easy. Yeah, absolutely it's, not. Yes. Snipers, they were everywhere. IDs everywhere. And once we had seen something Wait. suspicious and as around Kandari as well, the captain, this guy... I don't remember his name. I wish I remember his name to contact him. He was an amazing guy. And uh, he said, hey, Yanni, what do you think? I thought, I think my heart telling me there's a fucking big bomb underneath of this unpaved part. So let us do turn around and go back safe to our base. He said, mm, what do you think we try to hit on it? So, uh, okay, let me to get out from the vehicle and go kill yourself. He said, do you think like this? I thought, I believe there is something. My heart tells me there is something shit in there. Okay. So let us do go back. And said, uh, no. He asked the driver to pull back and drive very fast and before the dirt area to stop. And hopefully they will see we are trying to get over it and they will blow up it and then we will figure out like what is in there. And we did. I thought, fuck, fuck, oh my God. I, I don't know how to pray. So, but anyway, let us die. And we stopped before of it with one inch. Nothing happened. I say, see, Yanni, nothing happened. I told Captain, my heart tells me there's something in there. Trust me, there's something in there. We need to get out from the vehicles and check, maybe. But there's something in there. This street I've been hit three times with the previous team. And I'm sure there's something wrong in there. I said, mm, okay. Anyway, our time is almost done. Let us go back to our base. And we drove back to our base in the airport and then after eight hours the other team they were rolling in the same area same sector and they checked if there's a wire or something around this same dirt area they didn't see anything and they step on it with their vehicle they blew up a vehicle and they say it was 700 pounds explosives underneath 700 pounds that's insane yes i remember Anytime somebody would say something, you know, especially if you or, you know, Alan would be like, yeah, we should probably listen to him. Yeah, it is. It is hard. Like, there's always this feelings. We should follow our feelings. Whatever this feeling that I will not say I protect my guys, I protect myself. I was feeling something. And me and this guy, we were trust each other 100%. It's it's amazing relationship between me and him. And, uh, and that's one. We lost four American soldiers and a young 18 years old Iraqi interpreter. He was just being hired about 42 days only for him. He was an amazing boy. Very, very amazing boy. 
we found yeah. only one school, and I collect. I went there. I helped to collect pieces, just pieces. And uh, then we talked to some of farmers around. And that, I know, I understand they were scared to tell us about anything. But at least, like, do something. Like, at least to tell us, like, wait for us. Put a sign. Put anything. Put hey, Anything. But especially those days was so bad for everybody. It was if you talk to Americans at those days, you and your family will you will disappear. Canada worse than bad party. They pushed too much scaring in the inside the people's hearts. Yeah. If you have already listened to episode one, you might recognize these conditions when I described what led to the creation of the LET program. It's exactly this: an unmanageable crime rate produced by decentralized terror cells, intent on creating instability and fear. It just happens that the cells we dealt with primarily were aligned with AQI or Al-Qaeda in Iraq and some other small militias. But let's keep it going. So yeah, that's what's happened. And uh, By the end of 2006, I have a sergeant. He was my POC. I'm point poor. of contact? Yes. He said, Sam, he said, I'm poor guy. I have nothing. I thought, oh, bullshit. You are not poor. He said, no, I swear. I have nothing to give. I thought, we are cheap anyway. So but keep going. Say what you would like to say. He said, this is a piece of paper. Study it, check it, whatever, and it's amazing opportunity. What is this opportunity? I took the paper for him and put it in my locker. It was talk about immigration, whatever things. So I didn't care much. After four months, I was talked to the POC of your unit. If you remember when we were courage versus lieutenant, I wasn't like him, but I gave him the piece of paper. So he said, oh, let me check it. After two days, he came with a bunch of papers. He said, this black immigration now. Okay, okay, calm down. What's this point? He said, we are going to work on this. So the program being bigger, they tried to get us like a signature of the general, but they couldn't. So we stopped. No one could to get his immigration papers uh, done uh, from all the instructors working for 25 Cav. Yeah, first Cav, your unit. And it was 15 months. And I was happy because I love the guys that were working there because I didn't like both ID. I I liked the guys with your battalion. And my yeah. company was amazing. I love it. It was dangerous situation. It was dangerous everywhere. But we were smart enough to avoid bad things. Right. And we have at that day at those days so good people like working and careful, caution, keep taking care for things. Mistakes happens, yes, I agree. Some mistakes happens, of course. But at the same time, it was good. It was in general it was good. Yeah. Uh, it was funny, same time. So when the guys found I was at the OP house. Look, I know it gets confusing. Cops and OP houses, the military loves abbreviation. It's a lot. But the OP house or outpost house was an observation post for a five way intersection that gave us a lot of trouble in the first months of the deployment. Two roads led to no man's land, one to our company outpost, and the other to the southeast part of our area of operations. So one of the local power brokers who happened to be aligned with Shia militia gave us the house, and the platoon started rotating into it every three days. We stayed there with a generator, no running water or showers, and our vehicles just running patrols. And Thomas, Lieutenant Thomas, came back from Courage, been taken to Courage, and they sent him back, and we were waiting him. Actually, the guys were waiting him. I wasn't waiting him. Like I was, they took him there, and of course they have a meeting or something. And it's not kind of, it's not my business. 
and when he came back, he said, uh, guys, I want to talk to all of you. So, so I thought that's something important. So he said this and this and this. And everybody, I saw the faces being like, uh, not happy. Of course, ask them, what's going on? Who killed? <laughs> because that's always like the news that somebody be killed. They said, no one killed. So why these faces? They said, we have to stay another three months above our deployment. I thought, oh, that's good news for me. Super bad news for you guys, I know, but so good news for me because I do like you a lot. People love you here. So they said, Sam, or Yanni, they call me, of course, step away from us. You are so pissed off. <laughs> so I was just laughing at you and then just watch a movie, something on my whatever thing device, that's one. And it was for me like, yeah, to be honest, like I was happy because some people you like, and they are going to stay extra three months with you. That's amazing. And it's not good to keep them away from their families and their lives. Another three months, that's too much. Too much. But, yeah, but, I mean, it, from your perspective, I can imagine if, like, if you trusted us and you liked being around us, then it was probably yes. a good thing. Because you don't know what unit is coming next. You don't know exactly. if they're going to be as good. Yeah. Yeah. This relationship is, is not easy to, to find. Like we were eating together. We were using the same shower, same bathroom, same food, same everything, same dangerous things outside. We were sharing the smile. We were sharing the sadness uh, moments. We were sharing our praise. I wasn't praying. I, I never pray, but yeah, it was part of it anyway. And we were part of everything, all of us, for a long time. So and uh, it was lovely days, like. It was the days that I found myself, like, I'm real. So it's been fast, and thank God, like, everybody went home happy, no bad thing. Are there any, like, good stories that stick out to you from when we were there with First Cav? First Cav, like, there's a lot of things I would say. I was, like, most of the time, like, working with First Platoon and Third Platoon. And but not my platoon. Not that much. While my relationship with you and Manny, son Manny, it was so good, like so good. I was like Manny a lot. Yeah. He's like good, very good dude, like very good guy and very respected. Oh yeah, very smart. Yes, yes. While he was small, so sometimes I joke with him, but I wasn't joke with him like uh, physically. Like I respect him a lot. My relationship was very unique with O'Neill, very amazing guy. Yeah, he is. And his lieutenant was Larson, and Larson had been shot, so he'd been taken back home. You know Larson, he got shot in his hands. Yeah, yeah, they called him yeah. Nubby. Yes, and uh, somebody, his lieutenant, he's German 100%. He was tall, uh, but he was so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody likes him. So he was sitting in his tent, and he was just like a, kind of abandoned. Like by himself, everybody around O'Neill, they don't like to listen to that guy. He's young, very young, and he looks like he doesn't know anything. And he just came from a college to hear what I'm doing in this country, something like that. But he was like lovely, like he was trying to be like nice with everybody. But as like you know, like this name, uh, he was nerd, kind of nerd. Yeah, it's kind of the way it is for like a new lieutenant, like you. You so badly want, you know, to get in there and 
and like and, and be able to uh, do your do your job and no, it's kind of like listen to this like i'm sure you didn't suffer from this because it's it's your personality it's very important the personality is very important like uh, in the army in the civilian jobs whatever my personality is very important so sometimes you see somebody say oh what is this stupid guy and sometimes you see somebody will not say anything because you will just have some respect it's yeah. like this. so same thing happened with third platoon and thomas Lieutenant thomas been uh, what's called exo but the team was good and sergeant kirkham was there and he's an amazing guy he's a guy like you will trust him to give him your back so, yeah absolutely yeah so also third platoon i once i went to them they were always crazy I would say with third platoon, we've been shot a lot by snipers. That's going to sound a lot like this. And thank God, nothing happened. Only one of the guys, his pants, got two holes. That's a short-term area when we engaged face-to-face with some terrorists. And I told them, because we have to walk back to our trucks, it was hot, it was long distance. And no covers for us, and we were only eight people. And the snipers started shooting us from the other village, and we can't reach them. And I told my guys, I told uh, the sergeant, I told them, hey, leave me here because I can walk. I'm, I, I can't. Just leave me here, and I will find my way to come. He said, if we don't leave somebody behind, shut up. You can walk. No, I swear, I'm so heavy now. I can't. I wasn't able to take my breath. So I will hide myself somewhere in the canal in here. They will not see me. And at night time, I will call. I will take a walk. And I will make it. He said, no, it will not be. Because I was I was slow. I exhausted. I was able to walk. And at the uh, same time, I want not to be heavy on other people. We, there were only seven soldiers. Yeah, it was funny when we found the hole in his pants. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, sound, it sounds like a patrol that we went on in, in my platoon, I, but I don't think that was you that was with us. Oh, no, it was their platoon. Like, uh, we met uh, a walk west. Then we met a farmer there. Uh, we asked him, do you see some people they were shooting us with mortars? He said, every day they shoot you guys. They put them there. Do you see the spots? Yes, we see them. Yeah, that's our mortars. Maybe I shoot from here. Okay, you are not scared to tell us. Why are you not scared? I'm dying. I'm going to die sooner, sooner or later. What they will do to me? Kill me? Yeah, they them to kill me. It was so simple. So, there is a sergeant was, some, he was big. He'd been shot in his stomach, but nothing happened. Like, his, he was just bleeding and he came back to the war. I think. Yeah, no, I remember. It, it kind of, like, it was a very, I mean, being shot's a big deal, but it was a very superficial. Yes. You know, not, yeah. Yes. This guy very educated. He is Thompson. Not, Thompson. Yes. Was. Yes, that's one. So there's nice things happened. There's bad things happened. We of course remember all of our friends we lost, but we remember them. That's the best thing we can do. And uh, it was tough days. It was good days. What funny days? We spent some funny days with you. For example, you and your team. Before we continue with Sam, I want to tell you about one of my biggest regrets from my time in Afghanistan. 
Those who listened to the first episode with Mike Davios heard about how we spent time in an extremely remote and volatile valley that challenged our unit every single day. That time built an incredible team bond that will never be forgotten by those who were with us. We desperately wanted to commemorate with a t-shirt featuring a drawing for one of our talented soldiers. With the drawing in hand, I tried to work with a custom gear company to solidify the design and agree on how it would look, but ran into constant issues getting it done. We returned home and poof, the guys split from the unit quicker than regular ANA in a firefight. I wish I had an ally like Emblem Athletic to work with me on a free custom design based on what we wanted, then create custom and hand-sewn gear. On top of that, they eliminate the hassle of shaking folks down for orders and money by setting up a custom store link for ordering. So if mom and pop want some cool army stuff and the PX just ain't cutting it, or you need a replacement after some team building gone wrong, the store link will always be there. All of this comes with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So head to emblemathletic.com and take a style quiz to get started on awesome custom gear for your team, unit, or organization so you can look the part of a champion. And now back to Sam. So back in 2008 with what's called, I don't know, they are from Hawaii. Yeah, I can't remember the exact designation, but they were the gimlets. That's what I do remember. They carried around whatever those things were with them, which I... It was kind of hokey, but... Yeah, they came with strikers. They came... You know, like, two of... The, I, uh, I started working with that commander. He was an amazing guy. But uh, then he moved from the unit because he got the promotion to be a major. So he can't stay like a company commander. So they moved him somewhere else. And I worked, I was, uh, worked with him. And same time, the intelligence department of his unit. And that's two sergeants. They were speaking fluent Arabic, reading and writing. That's they, amazing. And they never say anything. And when they got shorted, because they had four platoons, uh, I was going out with the, one of them to cover. And my problem started going with first platoon because they don't show respect to the people. Like, they are kids. They acted like kids. So I told the detective, hey, LP, that's not cool. Piss off people for no reason. But if you rocks on their cars when they are driving, are you serious? Like, you are that is ridiculous. Very. Like, then I told him, hey, people here like need to respect them. They respect you. Like, you are wearing this uniform. He said, I know about this uniform. You don't know about this. I told him, I know about this too. Then I told him, okay. And yeah, we went argument me and him and his staff sergeant. And uh, once... Uh, they asked me to go with them in mission. So somebody woke me up and said, it's your turn to go to go mission. So, no, I'm working only with the commander. So go tell your LT, Yanni saying, get away from my face. And I went back to my bed. Well, that kind of, I mean, that makes me mad because, I mean, we spent a lot of time and a lot of effort not doing things like that to build yeah. that. And then, exactly. you know, it, it only takes like one, maybe two accidents for people to lose that for soldiers. And then their attitude completely changes. That's what I was saying. Because I want not the local people to be pissed off from us for stupid reasons. And then they will go to the bad side just to satisfy themselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, at, at that point, it was the awakening, right? And we, we had all those people that were joining the security force. They were going to be taking, you know, a lot of the security off our hands. They were going to, you know, set up you know, the good checkpoints that we would go around and monitor and make sure they weren't, like, taking money from people and stuff like that. So, yeah. That was like that was a that was a turning point. That's at the point where they had stopped putting in IEDs because they were actually doing this now. Correct. 
still, yeah. And then start 2009, they left, being replaced by another unit. It was uh, Pennsylvania National Guard, who we loved them. And they stayed, I think, eight months. Maybe Is this a cop courage? Yeah. Were you all still yeah, courage? Uh, no, no, uh, Liberty. Okay. Liberty. Did they did they yes. close down? Did they close down the cop then? They did. Yes. Okay. Yes. By the end, uh, uh, beginning of 2009, it's been transferred to the Iraqi Army. But yes, we went back to Liberty, and Liberty was, you know, it's amazing. And, uh, and Pennsylvania National Guard, they were awesome people. They were very friendly and super nice. And they don't have very good experiences in the street. Like we were walking, make meetings in the uh, city council of Abu Ghraib. And yeah. I told the EXO, uh, when you see like a woman coming, cover herself or something, respect, yes. But try to be away from her. She tried to come close to you, try to be away because there's something suspicious. Like yeah. why she's going to be closed. I don't know. Hey, can you ask your guys to be away from the trash? He said, uh, why? Is it stinky? I don't know. Because maybe the bad people, they hide something in there. And you want to know your guys to got hers. So he said, oh, okay. Then he told me, Sam, let me tell you something. We don't have very good experiences in the street. Anything you will say is very important for us. Okay. I will be here for you guys. Anything. That's very wise. So... Yeah, he, he was good. So, first platoon of them, I was always at the quarter. One of the soldiers been very close to a trash nearby the hospital of Grab. And there's like grenade in there, maybe small explosive. They blew up this one and they killed the guy. The guy was only 23 years old and uh, he'd been killed. We wow. drove to there, I found him on the floor and it was kind of like this feeling like you see one of your team just killed for nothing it's not easy and especially he's young like 23 he's a kid but you know he'd been killed and uh, uh because of a trash so i talked with my commander after a few days now i always saying don't be close to fucking shit trash boxes anything nobody listen or what so that's it. That's first platoon. Not us. I know. Still, that's one of our soldiers. They still should tell them, hey, before you go out, be careful from this, from this, from this. So then my commander once, he called me, say, we were smoking outside. So he called me to his room. He said, Sam, what are you doing in my room? At the CP. It looks like the same CP, by the way. Never change. He said, do you like your life in here, Iraq? I said, yeah, it's okay. He said, are you stupid? When you are going to gather your papers and come with us, you should not stay here. We are leaving. You need to leave. You should leave with us. You should not stay here. There's a life waiting you there. And I told him, uh, I do have a wife and a kid. He said, I understand. You will provide a good future for them. Bring me your papers. Let me see, how can I help you? And there's a good relationship between me and him, like very nice friendship. And yeah, he signed papers for me. Then we've been visited by a general two stars. 
So he asked him, hey, I do have this uh, guy, and he's blah, blah, blah. He told him, okay, I'll give him a recommendation. Does this help? He told him, yes, sir, this will help. So That's he made awesome. the general to sign it for me, yes. Then I've been helped by one of my friends, and uh, he put the papers together for me, and he put everything together and sent them. And, yeah, it's the program got frozen for a while. Then I got the uh, first agreement or first uh, whatever it's called, I'm not sure. And I told my friends, hey, I got it. They told me, you are a liar. Nobody got that. No, I swear I got it. This is the this kind of recommendation from chief of mission in Iraq. Yeah. So they said, we applied for this before of you. How you got it before of us? I don't know. I This is the paper anyway. So after a week, Everybody got his chief of mission recommendation. So that's good. Everybody got it at that point. Like, yes. All, all the people that yes. applied. So it wasn't just you. No, the first one. It looks like the first one from the people that I know about 20, 30 people. Yeah. I was the first one. And after yeah. a week, everybody started like that, 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 that. That's good. And that's about 2010. In 2011, I was working in East Baghdad, so I was able to go home every day. And the unit I was working with them, I was working like between the Iraqi government and uh, Iraqi forces and American forces. But well, was it, you know, like we didn't really talk about this when you were with our, you know, our unit. At that point, was it dangerous for you to go home? Did you still have to tell people that you did something different? Because I know that's something you had to do. Like the few times you I did go home. In 2007? Yeah. When, when you did go home. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was it was not easy to go home. That's impossible to go out from the base, even from Liberty. Uh, Morris, Sergeant Morris, was drove me outside at the gate four, and I was waiting my brother there, or he's waiting me uh, nearby gate four, and that's safe area because the Liberty there, and the other side Iraqi base, Iraqi army base, and there, and my brother house next to it. So my brother was wait yeah so he was waiting me at Sal Morris that's amazing guy I like this this guy Sal Morris and he was dropping me outside most of the time actually by himself he asked me do you want me to drop you outside or you get to walk no you do have a lot of stuff let me drop you outside so he was like drop me on the street there because my brother there he said that's your brother yes that's my brother you good yes I'm good so. It's not safe, but the street, this street is safe because the towers there and no one can be close to us. It's impossible. Yeah. And 2010, I was in Kandari, an Iraqi base and American at the same time. So I was going to the home sometimes that like I finished my shift and go home. I was driving my car and at the checkpoints, I wasn't stopped by the line. I was just cross the line and I showed up my ID. The Iraqi army, most of them, uh, this unit, I was like 100% no, they are good. So just show them the idea, tell them I'm working for the headquarters. So they think I'm working for their headquarters. Oh, yes, go ahead, sir. So, I, yeah, I, I, I was able to push myself on the people, make them believe me, like, things that maybe is not correct. So, yeah, in 2011... I moved to another unit. It was called, I think, 27F something. So I went outside with them in a mission. It was nighttime. 
is Baghdad, and I have seen pictures, big, big pictures for Muqtada Sadr, which is Mimadi army leader. I said, oh fuck, where are we? Then I said, oh, we'll see, where are we? We were using Humvees, and we were just outside. We do nothing. Like the Americans, they have no anything to do outside at those days because the Iraqi government in charge of the security situation there. But we were going outside. Right. And they hit us. My vehicle been hit by ID on the side. But was homemade ID. That's make my left ear pop out. <laughs> I checked myself. Nothing. So everybody okay? Everybody okay? I said checked, which is me. I'm okay. But my ear, I felt like something liquid. Yeah. My left one. They checked for me. I don't told them I do have pain, and I was feel like I was uh, hearing like ding like three days. So they gave, they gave me some kind of drops or something. But after a week, I checked it by uh, one of the Iraqi doctors outside. So he said. You need this air drops, and you will get infection with this air every time. Second time, I went outside with them. After two weeks for the first ID with them, they hit us with RPG. <laughs> and again, it was it was my truck, but they missed, hit the wall uh, next to it. And did you suddenly mission, become bad luck? You're you're always good luck with us. That's what I'm saying. I'm good luck because nobody hurts, so I'm the good luck. Okay, there you go. That's it. So you stay good See, luck. The, it's just a bad okay. area. Yeah, bad area, but I was with good luck. Like in 2006, I've been hit 33 times. My Humvee been replaced four times. My Humvee got fucked up in 2006, I remember. So from my unit, no one got hurt. That's good. And from my other unit, we lost people in the same spot. Wow. So I will say I was like the good luck for my guys, for myself. No, I agree uh, with you. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. The terrorists that were hit us every week, every couple of weeks with mortars. And June 6, 2011, heavy rockets, 100 pounds for each, six of them, maybe between four to seven American soldiers, injured about 14. And it was a terrible day. It was very early in the morning. So I was sleeping. I heard the first one. I thought dream. Second one. I opened my eyes, third one, I figured, no, it's real, something is happening. And I was on the team of the QRF. The QRF is just a quick reaction force, just folks who are on call and can respond within a moment's notice. So we jumped out and we found the trailers of the soldiers burning. And we tried to help, but there is what kind of help. Then the unit decided to go back to Liberty and they decided to leave three interpreters behind just to release them. And I don't know about the names of interpreters, we are going to leave them behind. Actually, my name was to be released. So I was waiting myself to put myself in the, yeah, the, the trucks they were using, it was Emerald. And my lieutenant was talking on the radio. Then I saw him jump from the vehicle, running to the headquarters and with one of his soldiers. So I was asking myself, what's going on? Like, something is weird. Then he came back running to vehicle and he was conscious uh, breath. And he said, Yanni, inside. Okay. So I jumped inside. In our way, he said, you heard this shit. 
he left behind? He said, I told him, yes, I heard about this. He told me, no, Yanni is not coming. You will leave him. Uh, I run back to you for you. I told him, I'm not going out from this base. I'm going to Liberty without Yanni. Yanni is coming with me. So the guy actually fought for me. So I will never forget this. And Liberty, we, I was there. And was okay. And one day at the MWR, I opened my email and I found a magical word saying, congratulations, you got your visa. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't take it. So instead of read everything, I unblocked the computer and ran outside. I started smoking. I have thinking. So one of the sergeants, as I know, he stopped by me and said, Sam, are you okay? I told him, uh, no. He said, what's wrong? I told him, hey, I got my visa. He said, congratulations, you're coming. I told him, I think, like, it's actually, I was 36, 37 years old. And all this history in Iraq, all the friends, family members, everybody, they came to my mind. I have to packing and move for good. So it was a bit big surprise. What was the best surprise, I think. So that's what happened. And then start working on the paperwork to finish it. And I got my visas. Me, my wife, my son, all of us in the same case. I emailed them that I want to make my travel. So say goodbye to the family. And the morning, I took my breakfast, the last one, at my brother's house, who drove me to the airport. And say goodbye. And he said, try to visit us someday. I told him, maybe I was going to come back to visit. But hopefully you are coming to visit. And we flew from Iraq. It was November 15, 2011. And I'm here. I've been choosing to come here to Austin, Texas, because my best friends are here. And it looks like same of Iraq, like Texas. Weather is amazing. How hard was it for you like when you first got to Austin to, to find those first jobs? In 2011, less jobs were, were available. And I do have two interpreters working already at Hyatt Hotel, Hyatt Regency Hotel. So the organization for immigrant people, they should help us to find jobs. And my friends, they tried to help me as well. So they got me this job. They told me, hey, there's a position. This housekeeping in this hotel, are you ready to work? I'm ready to work anything. But I don't know what this means, housekeeping. This looks like it's a cleaning and wherever things. So I start doing this job. For me, job is job. And we were a very small family, just me, my wife, my kid. And uh, yeah, I got the job. I tried to quit uh, to find another one. And I stopped by the bank, as I deal with, for some question. So the banker asked me, you from where? I told him, I'm from Iraq. Which part? From Baghdad. Which part of Baghdad? I told him, no. Now you have to stop. Because if, how you know about which part of Baghdad? Everybody knows Iraq. Everybody maybe knows about Baghdad. But nobody knows about parts of Baghdad. He said, yes, I was uh, a U.S. Army uh, before and I'm retired now. We had nice uh, conversation. And he tried to help me. He told me. He gave me good advice. He said, stay in your job two years to build your history. Then this will help your credit move the correct way. And he showed me how to use my credit and all these things. And this helped. This guy helped me a lot with this, with his advice. I took it. 
I made it and I put my credit correctly. So I found people like accidentally, they helped me somehow, advice, award, maybe hug. So did you find it hard to build your new, or not really hard, but did you find it complex or difficult to build your new life here? For me, it was kind of hard, not like, it wasn't like very, very easy. It's a different system. It's uh, like the first time I tried to put gas for my car. Like I use a card, how to use a card on the machine. So this, it wasn't like hard, hard, but it's, it's a different system. For example, these things, like small things, but it's a different system. Uh, you have to have insurance. Uh, well, why I have insurance? Because you want not to pay from your pocket. What if I have to pay from my pocket? Oh, we talk about thousands of dollars. So things, but it is easy. This language was simple for me, kind of hard for my wife, but there's a lady, she's working, she used to work in one of these immigration uh, organizations, and she found a daycare for my son. It's a Christian daycare. It was a wonderful place. They do have church, they do have daycare, they do have private schools there, high school, wherever. And we have good time in there, he has good time in there, he learned a lot of things in there. At the same time, we met people there. And people who, they opened their arms for us, and we've been friends with them. Christmas celebrations, we were invited to go there. They were amazing people, family. So we still have friendship with them till our days. We visit, go to visit them, their houses. They are coming to visit us in our houses. That's unique relationship. And try like, to ask if they can find a job for me or something somewhere. They weren't like rich people or something. No, but they were nice people. So... Uh, this, that's that's like, awesome, man. Yeah, it is. It is. Like, there's a big family. I'm talking about 60 members. This family, they do have 60 members. They had Thanksgiving. So they do have celebration of Thanksgiving. And they met this in a camp. It's about like 45, one hour uh, driving from Austin. So they invited us. And they uh, told us, please you should come. I want you to meet my big family. Wow. It was real big family. Different ages. From one day old to 80 years old. It was wonderful. They, all of them got together. Hey, tell me again about your real name. Okay. Sarmad. Okay. So everybody, like, it was funny. Food, cake, something. It was, it was amazing. The lady, so, she's sick now. My wife go to visit her sometimes. Yeah. Do you celebrate Thanksgiving now? Yes, with them, yes. But That's awesome. the last two years, she can't, uh, the lady, the main mom, she can't do this. She can't oh, be out of her house. She can't walk. Yeah, she's yeah. like about eight years old now, and she has some health problems. She's been okay, but then she dropped down again. But they are amazing. Her, her husband, professor, retired. She's a professor too. She, when she talks, she's touching my heart. So sometimes I call her. And joke with her, talk with her. She's so happy when she hears my voice. It's important for people to feel like real. And they are real. I w- I'm serious about this. Because they are extra wonderful real people. So I love them. So uh, that's one of the people. And one of the sergeants, my staff sergeant from National Guard, Pennsylvania, he kept talking with me. And when I move in here, we trade phone numbers. And uh, we were talking on emails or Facebook at those days, then phone numbers. 
And every holiday, he was sending a package to me. Clothes, something, gifts, and a cash in a small envelope. And like he was doing this twice a year. I was so embarrassing, I wasn't able to send him anything. Then I told him, hey, Jim, you have to say no. And he's part of the church. Actually, his, his wife more than him. She's part of the church in there. And he's kind of part of the church as well. But she's more. And he starts coming to us to visit us and see us. And last summer, he surprised me. He was in the line. I was taking orders. So then I, I jumped back to the window to say, next. I say, next. Fuck. Who is this face? And I just went, are you serious? We just talked a week ago. You never say anything. He said, yeah, I tried to make a surprise. Fuck, it's a big surprise. So I was so happy. They stayed with us a whole week. We had a good time. We went to some places. The other time, they stayed two weeks. Uh, he brought his family, his wife and two kids. He's going to stop by maybe next month as well. And I promise him that I'm going to Pennsylvania to visit because he came already three times. So I told him, I'm coming. I promise I will come and uh, I will visit. You know, I do have like extra car in my house. So I tell him, hey, you don't have to rent a car. Take this one. He said, no, I can't rent one. Oh, take it. I don't use it. They, they go to make shopping for us. Like my wife in the, in the house and, uh, and his wife take care for the kids sometimes. They take my wife, make shopping. They come back. It's, he's, he's a family now. Man, that's, so this that's one awesome. of the people. Yeah, it is. It's this unique people, like, it's love. You feel yourself, your family, like, you do have family. I'm away from my family, but when, when Jim and his wife coming in here, I feel like it's a family. Because when he come to my house, he sits and lay down on the couch, like he's in his house. His wife, the first time, she said, may the rest of the time. Excuse me, may you? Come on. You think like family, like, come on, use it, whatever. Use, use the house. I bought the house not only for me and my family, it's for you too, everybody. So, How do you feel about it? I mean, is that bringing part of your culture, part of your Iraqi culture to, to America? Is, you know, it, it, we talked about this a lot. When you have visitors, you know, your house is their house, you know, there. You, you talked about that. And, and like before 2003, that's the way people did it. For you, is there any culture clash between the U.S. or Iraq, or do you meld that into your life and and really kind of accept some of the culture that you've grown into here in the U.S.? The culture here, there's multi-different cultures. Uh, That's what I see, because there is multi-different people. The Iraqi cultures, of course, has been changed. It's been adjustable according to the situation here. So it's not the same people like you feel like when we're home. People being changed, kind of. Like, I, uh, tiny, we always go to their house. They are always coming to our house. We do have a specific relationship between us. We, we are the same culture, like, uh, same, same, same as I say. Like, if you are coming with your family, when you are coming, maybe the first five minutes you will feel like, oh, how I sit, like I sit like this. Or like, for example, what? Oh, sit how you want. Eat how you want. You are... Your wife, she will say, oh, I'm hungry, like, oh, oh, I feel she's hungry. Come on, open the fridge, eat whatever you like. Uh, there's some food on the, on the stove. So feel like you are in your house. Uh, I adjust myself in here. I don't, I'm not like Iraqi, Iraqi anymore. At the same time, I'm not American, American at the same time. 
maybe my kids, yes, they are Americans, but they still have some maybe Iraqi culture, maybe. My son, I don't feel he's going to be in touch with any Iraqi culture. So here, like, it's not easy to know people and trust them. Like, oh, he's going to be my friend. No, no, always, I'm always prefer, like, my friends who I met them before uh, from the army, to me, if they are coming here, yes, of course, these people, they are my people. But new people, to meet them in here and be friends with them, uh, it's not like, it's not me. It's not me to be, I'm, I'm friendly, I'm okay, I'm nice with it, yes, and everything, yes. But to be friend friend, to go to their houses, I love for them to come to my house and these things. Uh, for new people, no. But, uh, for example, Sergeant O'Neill. Well, Sergeant O'Neill coming, he's my older brother, like, oh my God, O'Neill here. And he has wonderful wife, amazing. He's lucky he has this wife. I love her. Like, when I see her, I kiss her, by the way. And I tell, I told her, when I hug you and kiss you, I feel that you are my sister. You are my family. And uh, same thing with O'Neill. Like, when I went to this damn their house, that's about one hour from here. He's amazing. But yes, he invited me many times. He told me, come, like, it's summertime now. My, he has, like, a boat, and the lake is just in there. I have to have fun, like, the lake. Yeah. Um, God, it's love amazing. that guy. O'Neill's great. Yes, yes. And he gives these really great bear hugs. Mm-hmm. So, yes, this culture is... Uh, well, it's actually a very open city. Nobody yeah. made us feel we are strangers or something at all. Well, do you feel like, uh, do you regret that your kids aren't going to know that much about where you came from and, and really where you and, and your wife came from? You know, they're not going to be as closely or as close to that culture? Uh, my son knows we are from Iraq. He knows he's Iraqi, but his language is English always. He understands uh, 90% of Iraqi language. I would say Arabic, of course, but Iraqi dialect. So if Jordanian person talk with my son, my son will just open his eyes and he will not understand anything. <laughs> but he dislikes to speak Arabic that much. I don't know why. Many times I told him, you need to speak it. He said, no, I don't have to speak it. But you need to learn it. He said, no, Dad, I'm here. I don't, yeah, you are here, but you need it. Someday you will need it to communicate with people. Sometimes I say he's still kid to understand this, but as much as he can understand it, he will be able to learn it. Right. But languages, you know, if you don't use it, you get rusty pretty quick. But, you know, it, it doesn't take long to get back into it once you uh, get yes. immersed, immersed into it again. Yes, absolutely correct. Iraqi culture, actually, we are like old school white people, like 50 years ago. It's, <laughs> it's that's what we are, yes. So you can see we easily be friends with people more than other people. It's weird. Uh, okay. I, I see what you're talking about. I yes. It's like, like 50 years ago. I mean, are you... Uh... <laughs> What part of the culture are you talking about? Like how they were open heart for each other, respect yeah. each other, uh, how they were treat their women with respect, with everything. 
and how they will deal with their kids with the good things and when their kids make something bad how they will deal with them how the neighbors they were good to each other at those days 50 years 60 years ago yeah yeah like my son here he passed through me and my friend without say hi to my friend and i call him son come back did you see my friend here he said uh yes i don't what does mean yes he said yeah i don't what does mean yes Yes, I see him or no? He said, yes, that I see him. I said, okay. Say hi to my friend before my both going to say hi to you. So I don't hit my son. No. Me and my son, we are so good super good friends. But there is things that's important. Hey, say hi to this and this. Uh, don't be like, just walk, you see somebody and you just keep walking. No, these people, they are friends to you too. Yeah. So... Exactly this way. It's, it's, it's important for kids to understand their boundaries, to, to love the people, to respect the people, to understand who can say hi to who or not say hi to them sometimes. Yeah. Well, and, that, and I remember those were the same lessons that my parents taught me too. You know, like that's that's the way that I was raised. And, you know, I remember talking to you and learning more about the Iraqi culture, thinking, wow, there's yeah. just, there's so much the similar that just because we're in a different place or just because we have a different religion or, you know, we've had some different experiences, there's a lot that's very similar. Yes, of course. Well, we are people, of course. Yeah. Yes. We covered a big deal from our story. Let me tell you something. The six years as I used to work as interpreter for the U.S. Army, I was so proud of this. I do remember your unit. Perfectly. And we had amazing time, sad time, bad days, great days. Uh, we cried some people. We were laughing on some other people. There's a very unique relationship between 2-5 Cub at those days and their interpreters and even local people. I'm sure everybody remembers. That horse on their shoulders, people remember them. And it's not forgotten. I still have this badge and one of my stuff, like put them beside with some recommendations, with some coins. And when I joined this job, by the way, I told my father, I'm going to be interred for you, son. What do you think? And my father was like a very wise person. He said, it's a dangerous job, but I'm going to be so proud of you to do the correct things for everyone. Just be careful, but remember, I am proud of you. Just me, if something happened to me, I will not feel any bad because I was doing the correct and the right things. And that's the most important thing. My father lost me and I'm still lost. Right. So let me just this uh, citizenship interview and the test. So when I went to the test in San Antonio, I read the book on my way there. One hour reading was enough for me to pass the test. And I was lucky because the guy who came to make the test for me, he was a former Marine. When I got inside his room, after he welcomed me and he was smiling, then I told him, when he shake my hand, he sh- put his hand to shake my hand. And I was like, oh, oh let me shake his hand. So when I see his room, I ask him, oh, you are a former Marine? He said, yes, I was in Iraq. So I sat with him like a soldier for more respect. And 
short conversation, me and him, then he corrected some uh, mistakes in my application. That was wonderful. And some questions. Yes, 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 yes. And uh, then we appreciated of each other for his work before. And he said these words, I will never forget that. We are so appreciated for people like you to help us on the field in different countries. I was so happy. He was understand like how we were as interpreters working hard and put our lives most of the time in danger. And he shook my hand. Congratulations. I'm so proud you are here in my country. Now it's your country too. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it was. After a couple months, I got my citizenship and nice ceremony. A big smile was there on my face. To get the citizenship, it's important for anyone to feel himself he's a real part of this country. I moved from Middle East, from Iraq, to here to start a new life, a real life. And I put myself here. Many of people prove themselves as well, a lot. And working hard, I was working about 100 hours a week, two jobs. Non-sleeping for two days or sometimes three days, maybe one hour, couple hours. I dig so deep to build myself and build my credit. And through this, I could to apply for good loans from banks and then I start my own business. So I built nice, beautiful food truck and I name it Halal Time. It's connected to my culture and start working on this by the end of 2015 and be approved. We are here. We are immigrants and same time now we are citizens of this country and it's my story. Well, I'm very proud of you, man. I'm very proud of what you've done and the way you've come in and made this your life. And of course, I'm proud of being able to have worked with you as an interpreter and that you know you were probably one of the best guys at, at your job doing that, but especially that you chose to come here and build your life and you've done so well at it. Proud to have you in America. Thank you very much. I appreciate it for a lot of opportunities and the time that we spend together. All right, Mr. Joey Snowden, prosperity and long life for you. And the same to you and shukran. Shukran, Habibi. So Sam would probably never do this, but I sure will. If you find yourself in Austin and are around 6th Street between 6 p.m. and 3 a.m. on any day except Monday, visit whose food truck named Halal Time. You can follow his Instagram at HalalTimeAustin. When you go, I'm told you should definitely order the hummus. It's the best in Austin. And you'll likely see a fellow with a huge smile and a big voice. That's Sam. Or Yanni. Yes, that Yanni. Before we go, allow me to remind you to head to emblemathletic.com to get your custom athletic gear. Listen, no one wants to look like a schmuck off the streets when pride is on the line. Gordon Bombay didn't let the Mighty Ducks play in the championship without looking like badasses, and neither should you. Only you don't need the big-time lawyer bucks to do it. Pull a triple deke and go start your free custom design that guarantees your satisfaction 100%. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to the show. If you liked it, please share with family and friends, and please consider leaving a rating, or even better, a review. It really does help. And while you're at it, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to connect with the show, you can visit the website at nstiwpodcast.com. Follow on Twitter at nstiwpodcast1 
or on Instagram or Facebook at NSCIW Podcast, where you will receive additional notifications as well as additional content. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to see it continue to dive into bigger and better stories, consider donating. Navigate to the website where you can read how the donation will be used and you can easily donate over PayPal. On a final note, if you or someone you know has a story worth telling, please submit a summary via a contact form on the website for consideration. Thanks again and get out there and do something worth telling about.